0: Hello, hi, good morning. How are you? Uh, I am doing well. I've missed you. I've missed you terribly. Hello. Um, I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, looking forward to talking to you. Um, gosh. I'm uh, traveling in the car as usual, and I'm uh, heading to the chandelier factory. I'm going to have a long, fun day of <laughs> making little glass parts. And then I have a, have another meeting at, uh, in San Francisco, an employee meeting with the glass shop there. Teachers getting together, talk about teaching techniques, I suppose. Things that teachers talk about. And i uh, have been very busy. Been very busy. Been a lot of packing and shipping and. Cold and fabrication parts, and overseeing a bunch of different things being made metal stuff, and kiln casting. Um, We have a lost wax process going through, and um, so lots of fun craft techniques. I've really been enjoying The This podcast where I I actually have to Put down To you know Actually Recording this information um, That I'm keeping it in my head And That I get it Out there And a lot of these things are based on Conversations I have in jobs And Talking about processes with others, and then we kind of consult each other and get to a place of agreement about a sequential process that we're going to proceed with to create something. Uh, For like <clears throat> in this kiln casting process, I'm working with a mold maker, and you know they have certain knowledge and I have certain knowledge, and so we. We consult each other. We compare notes to get to a place where, we're like, okay, that's the next step here. It's like we're doing this, we're doing that, and then we'll do this, and so we can kind of, in in some ways, it's like filling in each other's gaps, filling in the gaps of knowledge base. Um, In if there's any like questions or like if there's some special technique that somebody knows and it's a really it's a wonderful collaborative process it's one of my favorite parts of making is when you have a, a couple of people that all know a lot about a process and everyone can kind of share and everyone is learning on the way into the making that there's this moment in a good shop set up with a good team where you get to talk about the making process before you get started and everyone can kind of bring to the table their knowledge, their specific knowledge about um, the different steps and how things might done and that's where you know in the well in all sorts of shops but in the glass shop I'm thinking of like moments that um somebody might bring up a technique they saw once you know because I think in glass there's so many little steps and little moments of like things you can do to, to get a certain result whether it's with heat or with color and um, Tricks and tips once you get really far into the technical process, you know. Um, it, and it takes many years to get to this place where it's like very subtle things, you know, whether you know torch angle or how you heat it or the combustion atmosphere on the reheating chambers. all sorts of little subtleties that um, will then also be related to a a specific artist. And so there's a kind of lineage that is tapped in those moments of like, you know, I worked for this artist and they have, I learned this technique when we did this process. And then we all, all, in the glass shops, often all know that artist. And we know their work, and we know that specific look, and we're like, "Oh, that's how they get that look. Oh, that's really cool, and then that becomes this kind of legacy, and that's the that's the stewardship of the craft that I think is so interesting uh, that we can all carry, and that we get to kind of share um, you know I can trace back my own lineage of knowledge and the 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 steps that i've learned at the last ops i can trace it back to you know into italy into the czech republic to poland and like these kind of like different techniques that developed in different places and um, when they came over, and who brought them over to America, and then who they taught them to, who I learned them from, you know, so that this kind of traces this lineage. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that there's there's this is present in all of the crafts, um, because of the growth of glass as it did in the 70s and 80s, 90s in the Northwest and the rapid growth and rising and like the financial success of certain artists, like how that created a very, you know, certain moment is, you know, there's less so of those techniques that I learned in tracing the lineage of them in like book binding, uh, that because there's just fewer of them and a smaller space, but I think probably if you were to dive into any of these crafts in the way that I have in class, um, you get to... you can get to names of artists and historical references. Um, You know, I do actually kind of remember now certain moments of my youth and, like, different... Bookbinders that were around and the techniques they had, and so. Um, but there, it's you know often related to money, I suppose, uh, because there's you know if, if there's money to be made, then there's more often the technique is going to be passed along. Um, so maybe glass is somewhat unique in that I mean it's just such a a kind of magic material in the way that it looks um, and the light that it holds and all of its amazing properties it's just magic it's just magic Um, so what I've been enjoying is is thinking back uh, actually recording the Um, these long conversations I'm having with myself, with you, about these sequences, and then I get to think back on it and listen back on it and realize, you know, certain moments like mistakes or things that I have wrong or that I didn't quite know. Uh, And those are things that if I was in a conversation with somebody else in real time um, that I might actually we I might catch it might be corrected we might oh you know it's like this but actually it's like that and so um, I feel like I, at some point I have to have like a podcast where I go back and like catch all these things and things that I've misnamed or techniques that I have wrong or tools and equipment that I've incorrectly identified or and so, the learning process is constant, and I love that, or I do love learning. So I'm recording these things as if they are absolutes, and I'm telling you these things as if they are um, potentially right, but remember this, they might not be. I might be totally wrong, and I might be misdirected, and I'm happy to be corrected. That's part of this kind of collaborative learning process, I think, of crafting, is bringing to the table what you know, being honest about what you know, and being able to listen and learn in real time and figure out uh, a new, a whole new thing. Every time you're going to make something, present um, what you have and then readjust what you know and start again, start again fresh uh, each time and I think this was something that I learned from my father John Hanson uh, who taught me what he knew about bookbinding and in a kind of wonderful way was also you know he 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 didn't think of himself as an amazing bookbinder, and he and he was, you know, he, and he would he would say that he wasn't that great. He was just, you know, knew some techniques, and he learned enough to be able to make the kind of books that he needed to make. and he got enough information um, about those techniques to be to produce his whole line of work and to be a bookbinder. But um, what he really was interested in was learning. And that is is ultimately what he really taught me. Because even by, you know, in high school, you know, 16, 17, I was starting to work on techniques that were past his knowledge base. And he was certainly happy to learn them with me and find out about them. But it was, he was, you know, on his own life journey and path, he had learned what he needed to learn to make the books, to make the line, and he was really happy to have me learning, but was also, you know, busy as a father and a business owner and learning his other other things that he was doing in his own life, and... Um, and I think there were times when I would just, I, you know, especially in some of the leather binding I was doing, um, he was like, I don't, I'm not going to need that for my book binding process. And so right now it isn't going to, you know, it, it isn't going to fit my brain and isn't going to help me get through this, you know, get these 800 books bound. <laughs> so I'm going to focus on this and you focus on that crazy leather binding technique you're into, Eli and so it was this wonderful shop space, being able to share knowledge, and he would connect me with people, with processes and um you know, watch my books finding techniques and knowledge grow and you know, shared with me so much, but shared with me a love of learning and finding new things and um And, you know, probably at that time, like, his life journey was taking him into deeper into, like, personal philosophies and, you know, life paths in that way. And then, you know, he was in some ways moving away from craft. He wasn't a, you know, a really amazing craftsperson. And that was another, like, joy of his that he he knew this he wasn't he didn't struggle with it and wasn't frustrated by it um you know he could kind of see that he wasn't uh you know tools and things weren't his forte um he was a you know such a deep thinker and such a world traveler in his mind um that I think it was was, he had gone, you know, he had had this fascination with tools and making uh, in his 20s and kind of in his in the way that, you know um, he kind of dove into it and then just kind of transcended past it and that was so wonderful to be trained in that way by somebody that wasn't, you know Obsessive about it, or didn't think that there was an absolute way, and could see his own clunky ways, and could see that he wasn't that good at you know, using a skill saw or swinging a hammer, and he didn't, you know, have to be the best at it. Um, he just made some, he made his books, and he made them just right. But he didn't, he wasn't pushing past that, and that wasn't his life path. Um, in a lot of ways, I think his life path was to learn to be a better, more kind and gentle person and that was always his um, his approach and I think what he really taught me was how to learn, you know, whatever it is I was learning. It was It was that openness and the communication and coming to a process with all of your knowledge but an ability to adjust to that all. So putting it all on the table, reassessing it all from a real subjective, real objective place and knowing knowing what you know and knowing you're willing to change it all and learn new things because if you get set in your ways and you think you have it right then that's when you don't learn anymore and that's the you know kind of in that in that space i think is where being a person is can be such a wonderful thing is knowing what we know but knowing we don't know things and we can learn new things and what how that can feed into our life philosophies and sometimes like John Hanson it's like you know you get to a place in your life where you're done binding books and he you know he sold the book bindery in the early 2000s and you know he maybe I think he made four books after that and, it wasn't. It wasn't like he kept it as a hobby. He didn't. He was. He didn't miss it. He just, you know, he decided it was, you know, it wasn't a good business to be in anymore. That you know, by the the mid '90s, the change of the marketplace of independent booksellers um, had shifted and was starting to go to the internet, and the big box stores were starting to change the marketplace and he realized it wasn't a place for, you know, boutique handmade journals from one person. It was something that needed to be done in a big, a big shop and he didn't want to do that business. Um, He knew he needed to do a different business called me and at, you know, 23 offered me the family business I could buy it from him for a great deal all I needed to do was move back to Port Townsend and uh, work 16 hour days buy new books for the rest of my life and I thought you know I can probably work 16 hour days blowing glass and maybe I can Continue to move around um, and not just be in one place, mm-hmm. and so, and both of us were very happy with that decision. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a difficult decision. You know, it was sad to see the bindery go, but we both understood of where we were in our life paths that it was time for him to make a change and it wasn't quite time for me to take that on I would love to have a bindery I would love to be able to be a hobby bookbinder and have a bindery I would love to be a hobby glassblower and have a glass shop and have a little flame shop and a cold shop have all the accoutrement like of being a crafts person and those things and being a hobbyist and having a wonderful set of tools but all those things that they you know they cost money and they need to make money to support themselves um, that's not that's not what I have I don't have money I got skills and I have the ability to learn uh, that I think in large part gained from John Hanson and the way that he approached his life and being an how person That influenced him, the raising of his sons. So, um, what I really wanted to talk to you about today, and I did want to talk about those things, yeah uh, I think those learning. Learning was really the, the key objective there. was talking about learning in my own. assessment of my knowledge and learning from myself that I'm doing right now. I think that is a really wonderful thing. I am in a rapid pace learning environment right now, where I am learning so many different new techniques from shops and learning new people and and processes and the way that things people like things done. And then at the same time, while well, I'm doing all this recording and making this, kind of putting this all down um, into into the digital sphere. It's not going onto wax, it's going on to, onto silica wafers, really. I'm putting this down all down on silica. Um, I am opening myself up to more learning because if I just I think all these thoughts then I can kind of you know I can learn from myself thinking about them but even more so if I force myself to actually say it and record it then I think back and I remember the actual things I said and I you know I think to myself, oh, I do do just that in my head. You know, sometimes I'll go through these thought processes of crafting and readjust as I think about it. But it's more absolute when I'm recording it. And then I think back and I remember, oh, I did that. And that was actually, now I know that is different. So um, I'm kind of imagining, I think what got me here was the woods. Wood turning and lathe work, and that I am um, constantly thinking about that and adjusting that in my mind. And I believe that if I'm going to um, talk about wood turning and lathe work, that I probably will come back to this and think, "Oh yeah, I did that. I, that was that's not right. I should be that should be different." Um, But as they all are, I mean, tattooing, who the heck would want to learn tattooing from me? And, you know, all those crazy things I talked about, tattooing, both the conventional tattooing and um, party tattooing, whoa. In fact, if there was tattoo plays, they would be coming for me. They probably are. They probably are coming for me. Even glassmaking, like as much as I know about glassmaking, I know that there are things that I'm saying that are you know, contrary to um, many ways that, that many uh, many people do things. So turning wood on a lathe, um, I learned from an old timer in. Bellingham initially some basic techniques and um, and then really dove into it working for an artist who wanted me to replicate uh, shaker style furniture Um, and, and not just shaker style but all sorts of like chairs and tables and Um, coat rack coat stands Um, and those techniques then like I took my basic knowledge from there and I was asked to do something a little bit like more difficult kind of um, but also didn't have somebody to show me those techniques I was being asked by an artist that didn't know um, techniques about that stuff. It wasn't, and he and he wasn't particularly interested in learning the techniques. He just wanted the objects, and it was my job to get those objects achieved. Uh, and so I, you know, in some ways was kind of self-taught in that space, um, and was able to use videos and. Uh, phone calls calling a friend Uh, I have a lot of people that I can call and consult with and when I was doing that job I was living in upstate New York and so that would be another way I would learn would be to I knew that I couldn't go visit some of these shops but I could go I could call people and that had techniques and I and if I knew enough I could talk to them about Techniques. It's kind of related to that collaborative process that I was talking about earlier. Um, that I can, with a certain level of knowledge, I can get on the phone with someone and I can describe a process, and they can help walk me through either the next steps or where I have incorrect sequences and how I can correct those sequences and make a a better. Tighter object, um, and there were a couple of shops that I visited in Upstate New York that were wood turning shops, and they would give me some info on what I needed. In a lot of ways, I was very green. I learned from this a little bit from this guy in Bellingham, who was an amazing woodworker and one of those like old timers that was so good that would just like, you know show you the the machine and just like, oh, it's really easy, you just do it like this and they grab a chisel and they do it and they don't give you the basics and it's a very dangerous, difficult process and they make it seem really easy and they make it seem like, you know, you can just catch on to it and they don't even realize that they've been, you know, since they've been doing it since they were a kid, it's kind of ingrained in them in a way um, it's second nature to them and it's you know it's guys like that who I've learned a lot about teaching from. To teach to teach better to teach from a place of thinking about the person learning and what they might know and what their knowledge base is and that that knowledge base might be way different than mine that when I teach, I try to think about the person not knowing any of this stuff and not having a life of, of making and crafting, but not speaking down to them, just being clear about my terms and clear about my techniques and processes and checking in with them to see where they are and kind of, you know, and not, and not say that things are easy. It's one of my biggest philosophies in teaching is to is to really avoid saying things are easy. And if I'm going to describe something as easy, I say that this is easy for me now that I've learned how to do this. It's not a difficult physical act, but it's a really hard thing to learn how to do, and it's a really tricky technique. Once you get it, it's a fairly easy move, but it's, it's hard to learn. That's kind of where I'll use that. But I think that... Um, I had enough people when I was younger <laughs> Tell me that things are easy And I'm like This is not fucking easy man This is fucking hard to do <laughs> And you make it look easy And now you're making me feel dumb Because I can't get it And you know And, and plenty of people in glass shops Just really just being shitty and talking down It's just easy, just do it I don't know, it's just easy Or you know, these kind of old timer teachers and you know Who will just, you know Okay, it's your turn, now do it It's easy, it's easy i don't want to make that that's so prohibitive and it, and it can favor people that have base knowledge or people that are even um, have a natural ability you know and i think this is like in a lot of ways the opposite of my father of john that he just did not have a natural ability like he was incredibly awkward and you know but he would learn things. And it was like, you know, he got really into salsa dancing in the in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, like right in my high school time. And he was like, this was like this thing he was learning. And he was incredibly awkward. And he was like, it was really hard for him to learn. And then he got really smooth out of it. And he wasn't a natural person, at you know, learning this. And, and there's people that I know that, that you know, when they... Learn. You watch them learn dancing. Like they have a natural ability, and they can just jump right in. And it is easy for them, but it's not easy for everyone. I feel like I'm in that place where I don't. Ha- I'm really awkward. I'm an awkward dancer, and I think I'm probably awkward with a lot of techniques. But I've also had a lot of time learning them, and so I'm a good mimic now. And um, you know, I've not done a lot of mimicking and dancing, so perhaps I'm that's just what it is I'm just not a good dance mimic but I'm a good craft mimic Um, and so if you're going to say that things are easy you can favor those people and then you will leave out the people that don't just immediately get it but sometimes those people can be I mean everyone can get it and everyone can be the next best person at doing the thing and, and or have an amazing expression, whether best or worst whatever subjective term. But um, they can be it can be a really rewarding experience for them if they can get past that first difficult place because sometimes entering into a new craft is really really difficult. Um, so those old timers learning from those old-timers of wood shops um, who showed me how to work on a LA lane and it just made it seem so easy. And I'd have to go back and then, like, what I learned from them also was, like, I would go back in my mind and think about their, like, their stance. Think about their physical... The way that they approached that. Uh, they just the way they would physically stand and they would hold their hands and the way that they... Um, did that work? Was that's part of my mimic process? Is to learn things is to mimic these craftspeople to sometimes take the words of these old timers, but sometimes it's simply just to like recall in my memory them doing it and watch them in my mind do the process and think about how did they hold their hands where were their feet how, what was their center of gravity um, and what were they what were they doing what kind of protection like this guy was like this old timer was like definitely not wearing any no protection no eye protection or ear protection no face guard turning a big you know, piece of wood on a lathe, you know, just like this, it's easy, but what he did do was he was holding his hands in a certain way, and that was very natural to him to just hold his hands, and that was, um, and I think that was something he did finally talk about was, like, hand position was the important safety thing, you know, without any glasses or face guard, but hand position and you know when you come down to it with wood turning like, that's probably one of the more important things um, it's really good to wear a face shield and to be protected and to have your ears covered but if you got your hands in the wrong position and that chisel grabs um, then you can really hurt your hands um, and or body just by arms getting pulled over, wrapped around it, or whacked onto it. So, let's say we're going to turn, how about we turn a baseball bat? Um, I was going to say, we can just turn a a round log into a cylinder. Um, But I remember John Hansen he did, like, he made a baseball bat in the, fact that must have been, like, ninety one, nineteen ninety, ninety one, 91, or something, uh, and he went and learned from somebody making a baseball I didn't, I wasn't there for the, that process, when he brought the baseball bat, I was really impressed with this. The bat that he had turned on the lathe, how hey, it's so smooth, and all his own lathe. Um, and so, turning a piece of wood, I feel like I just got to get through the tools and the lathe, all the different chucks and chisels before we can even get to a piece of wood and then probably it's going to take me like an hour to describe just actually turning it so let's talk about a lathe um, a lathe is a motor and it is a there's either going to be a direct drive or a belt drive and um, i believe i think that it's it's well, it's it's fairly common a direct drive or a belt drive i believe it's more common to have the belt drives now it's generally just more common to have belt drives because belts and pulleys are a little more efficient a direct drive you're generally gonna have a better power and torque and less slippage you're gonna have to have a motor that generally will be variable speed and uh, you can adjust it but because the belt drive you can you adjust the speed um, the RPMs through the pulley ratio and if it's direct drive you have to have a variable speed motor and that that's just a little bit more complicated electronics Um, so but with a lathe because of when you're bearing down onto what you're turning um, a belt can slip and so you lose some of your power in that belt Um, but nowadays with the belts um, the ability to um, I think I was going to say the ability to tighten but I think it just really is the belt probably um don't have to, it's no more like leather belts and repairing the belts yourself and the belts are all available from the belt supply store Uh, so so get your motor generally your motor is going to be on the left side and that uh, that turning head then that's the drive side, and the other side. Dang, is that the spindle head? That's on the other side. I, feel like I should have that. In turn. These are these are the things that like I don't know the names as well on a wood lathe, um, and then if I'm talking with somebody, you know, we could kind of figure out these tools that they would probably know more than me about the names of the tools. Um, I know some of the processes and techniques. Um, If you want to turn some crazy piece of wood down into something nicely, I'm a guy. If you want me to label all of the pieces of equipment, I might not. um, be your guy. That's me. Not your guy. Um, So you got your drive head and your non-drive side. And you're going to have different little attachments, um, attachment points and ways that you can turn so that you could, uh, essentially you're going to grab it from the drive side, whether a chuck that will tighten down onto your object, or a screw plate that you're going to attach screws into or whether you would have just pressure points from either side and so from the non-drive side you would have a the same you generally don't screw to the non-drive side you would generally just have a centering Like a a bearing you'll have a ball bearing with a point coming out of it that would be the on the non-drive side that would you could apply pressure with that into the object and hold it Uh, the other thing you could put on that side is a tool um, like a drill bit you can attach a drill bit a you can put a chuck head uh, an adjustable chuck like a drill head chuck onto that and then the drill bit would stay fixed and then the object would turn around it and that's how you drill a hole so you rather than the drill bit turning, the object is going to be turning. And you can truly hold that way. Uh, and you could also you could also put a cutting tool on that side as well, uh, which is less common with wood lays. When you get into metal lays, it's more common that you're going to put the cutting head. But with the wood, I've done this, sub um, in some, like, um, when I'm making molds for glass wood, I mean, there's certain reasons why you might want to, if you want to, like, cut a long cylinder inside of a piece of wood, but I feel like that's more, like, weird production stuff, and probably there's certain furniture processes where you want to be very tight with your production, you would put a little cutting tool Um but generally, with the wood lay, the kind of hobby style and American style is to just use your use a tool rest, and hand hold the tool, and uh, scrape the wood surface uh, with your gouges in your chisels, which is not what you do when you have metal on a lathe. When you got metal on a lathe, you, it's too it's too hard. You have to be too precise with the tool. So you have to put your tool into a fixed point and And then you adjust it with a little tiny adjuster. Um, so on the drive side, you have a chuck that will you can either tighten it from the outside, clamp it in like a four-jaw chuck. So it's got four jaw parts that go in and out on the face plate. So you have a round face plate that screws on to the drive side of the lathe and those and generally the wood lathe you're going to be only well you're going to turn in both directions sometimes but it's less common that you'll be turning in the reverse direction the reverse direction is going to be that that front face is going up and away from you the normal direction is the turning the front is coming down towards you and so that the screw is going to go in the opposite direction, which is... That would be a righty-tighty-lefty-loosey situation. Um, and so... Those will screw on, but you can also use the Morse taper to hold those. Morse taper is... A, uh, a taper fitting that the inside the socket part is tapered in such a way. it's a, it's a long spoon. it's like a taper that's you know three, four inches long and tapers from a one inch down to a half inch about something like that. And so that taper over that long length, if you make an inside and an outside fitting and you shove that taper inside that cone inside there um, that's that's enough surface and the tension will bind in such a way that it will grab and it won't um it won't slip and it will be a positive um, force and you can actually put a lot of force against that and the more you push against that the tighter it gets and to remove that morse taper you tap it, you got to have to tap it out or you can just tap it right out um, and then you shove it in and it will bind and if you push against it it will bind more and it won't slip this is how like drill press heads work, it's how lathes and mills work, they all have this morse taper like, on top of a drill press and you know, put it up inside that inside the pulleys and above the head there's a little hole and you can put in a little tapper and you can tap out your uh, your head and you can put in a different head Um, In a mill you're generally not going to have an adjustable collet so you'll have all your you know R8 collets are all going to be different set to a different size So, um, and then you ram them inside that Morse taper and then you use a screw to tighten it down and that will hold it but um, on the lathe on that end I guess you do it's often you have like a screw fitting that has a Morse taper and so you cram that Morse taper in there with the screw on there and then sometimes you screw things on it and sometimes you tap out that screw fitting okay we're getting into the weeds here gotta keep it clear uh, so generally you're going to be turning in that one direction back into yourself um in which case though screw that screw fitting is going to work great um if you go in the reverse direction and you put a lot of torque, then you can unscrew it. And so, generally, you're not going to be cutting in the reverse direction. The reason you're going to want to go in the reverse direction is for sanding. When you're all done with turning your object and you're sanding it on the way, which is also incredibly dangerous, uh, you're going to want to go in the reverse direction because all that grain is going to be laying down in a certain way. And then if you go in the reverse direction, it will um, loosen up that tooth in the other way. And it's, you, can, you can feel the difference when you stop it. You can feel it's very smooth in one direction, a little rougher in the other way. And so, when you're really sanding something very smooth, um, you want to reverse direction and sand it in the other direction also. Can you believe that? I was so amazed when I heard that. And I was like, that's just bonkers. That's crazy. But it's not bonkers, it's true. It's totally true. It's 100% true. Or potentially. Who knows? I can come back to you later. I won't tell you that as much. But I heard of him at Old Timer, and I tried it, and I felt it myself. So I'm pretty sure that one. Um, there is some feeling of truth to that fact. To that made-up fact. So on that drive side, we've got our four-jaw chuck that will tighten down on the outside of something, you want to clamp down on something, you can use your four-jaw chuck. Uh, I think pretty much all I've seen are four-jaw. I feel like the three-jaw I've seen on glass lathes and metal lathes, but with the wood lathes was like always the four-jaw, but maybe there are some three-jaw chucks. But I think the contemporary, like the Delta style That, like, they all kind of have the same Screw-type fittings There's a couple, there's like two different sizes In the, like, home desk version Of these wood-turning legs uh, Two types of, there's two sizes on those screws It's like a, like a 5.8 an inch something I feel like one, one screw size is like around five-eighths and three-quarters, and the other is closer to like inch and a quarter or something, but I might have those. I'm just making it, up. making it up for you. And okay, so you got your jaw chuck, and then generally those jaws either have like they're double-sided or they're reversible so that you can either squeeze in Or you could push out. Like if you had a cylinder, you could put it over the jaws, and you could push the jaws out into the inside of the cylinder and hold it from the inside, Um, which is tricky because you've got to make sure your wood is strong enough that it can handle it, because you could also just break your wood apart if you are to put it um, the jaws pressing out. uh, Generally, that's going to be like a pretty specialized kind of application the outside jaws, that's like a more normal where you squeeze it from the outside. Um, One old-timer showed me that the way to clamp a piece of wood in those chucks is you put it in there and you squeeze it down as hard as you can and then you wait a second and then you do it again. The theory being that the wood Fibers compress, and that then you actually can put more pressure on it. Like you press on it, and that pressure kind of acts on that wood, and then you wait a second and then you do a little more. Um, Theory seems to check out. I don't know how true that actually is, but you know, also you could say, you know, as a Pressurizes It pressurizes. Waiting a little bit isn't going to make a difference. But maybe it does. Wood's got some weird. Wood's got some interesting qualities like that. It does some tricky things. Um, you know, I know with, like, working in green wood on a lathe and getting it really tight is really important. And so I would use that technique, and it seemed to help. Um, so you've got these jaws that tighten um, and with the with the key, what is that little key called? Like the key that turns on the side you have, like on the side of a drill press, um, and, and has like it, it's the gear that changes, the, you know, the rotation. You you rotate it, it changes the axis of rotation. So that you're turning. You put it into the lathe and you turn it to the left and right and it drives the lathe head down and around. Um, and so that chuck key um, is what you use to tighten those jaws or know, tighten them in or to spread them out and to hold them. And then the other way you'll attach wood is with a face plate, a screw face plate, so that it's like a flat plate that has screw holes on it that you could then screw into it and screw your wood onto it, and then you have screws sticking out into your um, into the wood, and then that you have to be careful because you've got screws in there and you're using a metal tool on the wood and that you could grab those screws and really mess up your tools or create an unsafe situation. Um, so, screws in the faceplate, you know, it's like a three or four or six inch disc, um, with a number of screw holes counter in the back, and then you would line your wood up, and that is going to be that's going to really fix your wood up. It's going to be trickier to get it kind of centered. You're just going to be essentially like guessing where center is when you run your screws into that. And if you're trying to turn something a little that's a little crazy. Um, and it might have a heavy part on it, you could actually, like, screw it in off-center, and then depending on how stable your lathe is, you could really get in some vibrating situations. Like, if you are to screw something off-center onto a lathe that's not really bolted down, doesn't have a big heavy cast iron base, and you put it on there. Um, It could be really wobbly, and or unsafe enough to come flying off. Um, so your blade, the blade they're using, like its its abilities and its strengths are going to be related to how stable it is. like is it bolted to a very stable counter or cast iron base? is that cast iron base bolted to the ground um, and then how stable is the motor how stable is the motor mount is it direct drive or belt drive because the belt drive will also be more wobbly and rattling um, where a direct drive is going to be uh, more stable also it's just the heavy motor is right there and there's no give in that belt Oh yeah um, so um, you know like if you're cutting like crazy bolts like if you're like rough cutting bowls starting from a big log um, you're going to want a very stable heavy duty lathe to be able to hold on to that um potentially unstable piece of wood and the more you can cut it down and like set it up so that it's as round as possible um the less rattle you're going to have um when you get started. Um, and then also the, you know, the more you have to remove material on the lathe, um, just generally the lathe is going to be really messy. You're going to, the way that it spits the chips is generally going to be the messiest of all the tools in the wood shop Um, I mean it's one of the really original kind of tools in a wood shop like mechanical action tools like you've got your, your chisel and maybe some sort of saw but maybe you have a chisel and a splitting implement and then a lathe and a lathe is like a kind of easy thing to set up too and you can do quite a bit on a lathe. You can really, like, essentially avoid having a saw um, if you have a lathe, and it's some real, like, very rudimentary woodworking techniques. Um, but a lathe can really, um, you can do quite a bit in the round, um, because you, once you get the wood spinning, you can cut it down, um, and you can um, you can really do a lot to it. Okay, here we are. Here we are at the chandelier factory. Um, but tell you the truth, we didn't even get all the way through what the lathe is and all the different parts of the lathe. So we're gonna have to come back to that we really are um, but I've had a nice time talking and learning I'm glad um, you're here for this with me talking all this through so thanks for listening um, I look forward to talking to you more about woodworking techniques and specifically Turning wood on the lathe and talking more about craft, craft techniques, and the technique of learning. So there's going to be more where this came from. Um, thanks so much for listening, and talk to you soon. Okay, love you lots. This send a message. Bye for now.